Live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery in downtown Chicago, this is Bug House. Bug House was recorded on February 12th, 2018 and featured Vincent Truman, Jason Smith, Lauren Huffman, Phyllis Porche, Peter Kremitis, and David Himmel. We are living in an age right now where discourse has become, and, and you can blame it on a lot of people. You can blame it on social media, you can blame it on it. But basically, we've stopped learning how to disagree in any kind of persuasive way. If you look at what most, what goes for most political discourse or social discourse is, I'm gonna fucking yell at you, and if you don't agree with me, then fuck off. And that's kind of what we've come to. And David and I at Literate Ape decided that that wasn't good enough. That we're not happy with that. We're not satisfied with that discourse in American conversation. So we went back in time to 1911, another time where there was great political and social strife. And what happened in Chicago is Washington Square Park was dubbed Bug House Square. Bug House is a pejorative for a loony bin, which is a pejorative for a mental hospital. And and it was called Buckhouse Square because what would happen is every day, or not every day, but like every weekend, I guess, uh, radicals and free thinkers and, and you know, the people with the most to say would get on soapboxes and they would debate about the issues of the day. This is Buckhouse! <laughs> The straw men will argue that 9-11 killed irony, that Black Lives Matter has killed any racial humor, that Me Too has made any sort of sexual humor a thing to fear. The argument that they will argue tonight is, is satire dead in the age of Donald Trump? Please welcome our, our opponents, our combatants, our warrior poets, Jason Smith, Vincent Truman. Give him a hand. <laughs> All right, Jason, call it in the air. Heads. It is heads. Would you like to go first or second? Second. You will go second. So, ladies and gentlemen, Vincent Truman. How are you tonight? You all right, then? Yeah. I'd like to do a song from a new LP. New LP. The new LP. That's right, Paul. <laughs> And this will be an argument sort of uh, in support of satire, as it were. Those of you in the cheap seats can clap your hands. <laughs> the rest of you can just rattle your fucking jewelry. That was the original joke, by the way. Mexicans are rapists. They're not sending their best. But they can pay for the wall, which might just be a fence. 
And we can pay for it by fines on abortions. Yeah, certainly makes sense. It's just things that go Trump in the night. Things that go Trump in the night. No matter what you say about guns, doesn't matter at all. Cause I can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. And my numbers wouldn't fall in there. My goodness, there's some mighty fine Nazis in Charlotte's vault. <laughs> things that go Trump in the night. Yeah, things that go Trump in the Process. Things that go Trump in the night. Things that go Trump in the night. Yeah. Yeah. Vince Truman, in support of the idea that satire is alive and well, and now to argue the other side of the issue. Jason Smith, give him a hand. Yeah. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to mourn the loss of something that is very dear to us. Something that has provided insight and relief. Something that has changed the way we see the world. Something that has made us laugh and cry. And that something is satire. Activist Mahid Nawaz said, satire is by definition offensive. It is meant to make us feel uncomfortable. It is meant to make us scratch our heads, think, do a double take, and then think again. But today we live in America that doesn't like to be offended. America today gets offended so easily, so effortlessly that we are offended by everything. I'm offended by your language. Please don't swear, you motherfucker. We are offended by our choice of pronouns. They, he, her, me, us, woman or girls, ladies or boys or lads. 
We are offended by race. We are offended by how we speak to each other. I am offending you. Am I offending you by my accent, by my clothes, by my scarf? Am I eating gluten-free? Are you eating meat? Is that color an example of white privilege inherent to this argument? We, can live, we can't live in a culture that makes us feel uncomfortable. Everything should feel safe. We watch the world from our digital slates, in our pockets, from the comforts of our own home. They, make a, they, are, they are allowing us to create a life that is choose your own adventure. We can avoid everything that makes us comfortable. Are you a racist that I'm gonna delete you from my Facebook? Are you a homophobe that I'm gonna unfollow you on Twitter? Are you a sexist, white, privileged male? Well, then I'll block your phone number and make sure to never be in your presence again. Comedian Kathy Griffin recently took a picture of herself holding a simulated, decapitated head of Donald Trump. An article in Breitbart, Breitbart Magazine stated, the photograph was met with widespread condemnation as Griffin was almost immediately fired from CNN, where she had hosted the network's New Year's Eve coverage for a decade. She saw numerous stops on her cross-country tour canceled and was questioned by the US Secret Service. The act of satire not only destroyed her career in the United States, but she had her life threatened as well. So today, dear friends, we mourn the loss of an uncomfortable idea. We say goodbye to a new view of the world and we must grieve for the loss of satire. Nelson Mandela stated, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And today we grieve not only for the loss of satire, but for the belittling of knowledge and education in 21st century America. As an educator, I believe in the transformative power of education. And today I asked my students if they knew what satire was. And only two of them raised their hand and only one got it right. And I'll ask you the same question. Could you define satire? Could you tell your mother or your child what satire is? We live in a country where the wealth gap is growing exponentially. The richest 1% now own more additional income than the bottom 90%. And how do we continue this wealth gap? You make education hard to receive and you devalue intelligence. You make the bottom 90% believe that knowledge is only for the elite. There has long been a trend in the United States of anti-intellectual elitism. We dismiss the sciences. We dismiss the arts and we dismiss the humanities. And today, today, President Trump announced that in the 2019 budget, they will eliminate the National Endowment for the Arts. We live in the 21st century and people still believe that the world is flat. From the anti-vaccine movement to the climate change deniers, people no longer believe facts. They no longer believe science. We don't care about education. In 2014, the Oklahoma Council for Public Affairs commissioned a civic poll amongst public school students. 77% of students didn't know who George Washington was. They couldn't name Thomas Jefferson as the author of the Declaration of Independence, and only 2.8% could actually pass a citizenship test. 
A Gallup poll said that 18% of Americans still believe that the sun revolves around the earth. We are creating a world of dummies, of angry, self-righteous morons. And how, my friends, can we appreciate satire if we don't understand the world we live in? How can we celebrate artists who use satire when we don't even understand what it is? So today, dear friends, we mourn the loss of not just satire, but the loss of an intelligent and educated United States. Art Buchwald once said, you can't make up anything anymore. The world itself is satire. All you're doing is recording it. So take a minute and close your eyes. Go ahead, close your eyes, and think of the, and, and I want you to visualize the following people. President Donald Trump, Ivanka Trump, and Jared Kushner. Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, Steve Bannon, Kelly Ann Conway, Melania Trump, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders. What do you see when you think of these people? When you think of President Trump, do you think, do you envision a regal, eloquent statesman who is working for the betterment of our country? I mean, forgive me for stating the obvious, but just the term Donald Trump feels like satire. <laughs> if you could travel back to 2007, what would your 2007 self think if you told them that the post-post-racial president would be Donald J. Trump. I think you might fire yourself. <laughs> when you think of Betsy DeVos, do you picture a woman who wants to make education accessible to every citizen? Any person on this list, every person on this list is ridiculous. And remember back in 2012, when Tina Fey dressed as Sarah Palin and she reenacted the Sarah Palin, Katie Kirk interview word for word. That was satire at its finest. We could see the stupidity and the incompetence, and it worked. Now in 2016, satiring the candidacy of Donald Trump was a very different experience. People liked it. They didn't see the stupidity. They thought he was refreshing. They thought he was speaking for them, and he won the election. Instead of opening up our eyes to someone's incompetence, they actually made the argument for the candidate. To quote The Atlantic, fear is in the air and fear is surging. Americans are more afraid today than they have been in a long time. And this fear, this fear has led us to be a humorless people. Americans can't take a fucking joke. <laughs> As we gather here today to mourn the loss of something that is dear to us, we celebrate that it existed. And we grieve the loss of an entire genre of public discourse. We mourn the loss of satire. Goodbye, friend. We can no longer criticize stupidity. And now we can no longer hold our leaders accountable and we can no longer allow the shame, we can no longer shame our political officials for their stupidity. We must just grin and bear it. We'll miss you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. 
Satire is either dead or it is healthy and alive. Shannon, our judge, who wins this bout? I'll go for Vincent. Vincent. Vincent Truman wins. Satire is not dead. This week we have a holiday that is known for its hearts and cards and flowers. Millions of people this week are buying cards and flowers and chocolates and romantic things. And the question that is begged with this holiday, Valentine's Day, love or commerce? I want you all to close your eyes. Close your eyes. People in the front, close your eyes. You can eat it again, just please close your eyes. Close your eyes, everyone. Relax. Take three deep breaths. Clear your mind as much as possible. I'm about to say two words to you, and I want you just to notice what pops into your head. Valentine's Day. I'll tell you what I see. I see pink heart-shaped balloons floating through the air. I see heart-shaped boxes revealing delicious chocolates upon the removal of the lid. And I see Hallmark-specific cards with red hearts all over them. When a holiday associated with cookie-cutter mass-produced hearts, it's not a holiday of the emotional heart. And tonight, I will prove to you how the modern Valentine's Day is nothing more than a money-making machine an excuse to spend money. I will show you how Valentine's Day started off as a, a heartfelt tradition, through time was diluted by greed, and today is simply a corporate moneymaker. In other words, Valentine's Day is just like Christmas. Both holidays originated around AD 300. Both holidays were hijacked by the church, transforming them from their original sentiment to something Christian-like and both holidays revolve around gift-giving. I present to you hard facts and figures. Notice I did not say alternative facts. I said hard facts, pun not intended. Thank you. In one year, approximately 150 million Valentine's Day cards are exchanged annually. Two, more than 35 million heart-shaped boxes are sold, and three, 220 million roses are produced just for Valentine's Day. This breaks down to a spending amount of $130 per person per year on Valentine's Day alone. You don't have to believe me, but you should believe the History Channel. Don? There's no doubt about it. Valentine's Day is one of America's most popular holidays. More than 62% of Americans celebrate by sending greeting cards and flowers, giving candy or other gifts, enjoying romantic dinners, or all three. But the history behind Valentine's Day turns out to be somewhat surprising. For example, the roots of Valentine's Day go all the way back to a raucous ancient Roman fertility festival held in mid-February called Lupercalia. 
Later, the Christian Church chose mid-February for St. Valentine's Day in order to Christianize the celebration. But who was St. Valentine? Not much is known about the holiday's namesake. First of all, there was more than just one Christian cleric named Valentine. One of them was sentenced to death for performing marriage ceremonies in secret after Emperor Claudius II banned marriage for young Roman men, thinking single men made better soldiers. Pope Gelasius declared February 14 as a day for honoring the soft-hearted Valentine at the end of the 5th century. It wasn't until the 1300s, though, that the holiday became definitively associated with love and romance. Back then, people believed that February 14th was also the beginning of birds' mating season. The first written Valentine greetings appeared in the 15th century, and by the 17th century, people in Great Britain had begun a tradition of exchanging Valentine's Day cards or letters. Valentine's Day soon caught on in the U.S. as well. The first mass-produced holiday cards emerged in the 1840s, and Valentine's Day soon exploded into a major consumer holiday. Today, an estimated 1 billion Valentine cards are sent each year, more than on any other holiday except for Christmas. More than 35 million heart-shaped boxes of chocolate are sold, and more than 220 million roses are produced for the holiday in a typical year. Altogether, Americans spend almost $20 billion on Valentine's Day, or an average of some $130 per person per year. While the most popular gifts were candy and flowers, nearly 20% of Americans splurge on jewelry, shelling out as much as $4 billion annually. And those who prefer the ultimate romantic gesture are definitely not alone. A recent survey revealed that as many as 6 million couples are likely to get engaged on February 14th, continuing a long romantic history that we bet you didn't know. Thank you, History Channel. All right. To recap, to recap, a man named Something Valentine performed secret weddings so Roman soldiers could marry their true love. So he was given his own day. Totally adorbs, right? Fast forward some years and the Christian church took over. This led to a Valentine evolution where lovers exchanged Valentine's greetings. In the 1800s, mass-produced Valentine's Day cards came to be. And today, a Valentine means shelling out money for flowers, candies, and dinner. Sometimes even jewelry. Microsoft Power Search Engine Bing takes these facts a step further. In the past few years, Valentine's Day no longer discriminates against single people. Gone are the days where Valentines were exchanged solely between lovers. Nowadays, people are buying Valentines for friends, family, and pets. <laughs> when people search for Valentine's Day gifts for fill-in-the-blank on Bing.com, 22% of people fill in husband, 20% of people type friend, and 17% type boyfriend. Additionally, 19% of people spent an average of $26 on a Valentine gift for their animals. <laughs> this equates to $681 million in total. In 2018, Valentine's Day means it's time to spend money on others, whether it's friends, family, significant others, or cats. I leave you with this. When is the last time you heard someone say, I don't know what to get them for President's Day? <laughs> Never. Thank you. There you go, Laura. <laughs> and now for the counterpoint for 
Right. Dear love haters, <laughs> once again, you have reared your collective cynical heads to cast shade on a holiday that promotes love. And once again, we love lovers ask, why? Is it because you don't love anybody? Or is it because nobody loves you? <laughs> You're not getting candy or flowers. So what, nobody should? <laughs> you guys say things like, I love my boo every day, not just when Hallmark tells me to. Candy and flowers? I put a roof on your head, over your head, and food in your belly. I gotta buy your ass candy too? <laughs> and my favorite, baby. It's not even a real holiday. I mean, we don't get the day off from work, do we? No, why? Because that only happens on real holidays. Valentine's Day was created by the greeting card companies. I saw it on a peanut special. You know that shit is true. <laughs> and yes, there was Chicago's very own Valentine's Day event. <laughs> uh, historic fact, people. Al Capone said, and I quote, I'm gonna deliver a Valentine to Bugs so he will never forget. See, even outfit guys recognize the importance of the day. <laughs> How do we know? The movie is based on a real story, and Hollywood does not lie. <laughs> Here's a bit of unchecked urban myth. On February 13, 1968, a love-hater gathered all the women in her office and told them, tomorrow is Valentine's Day, and I know some of you will be getting candy and flowers and other gifts, but some of us won't. So I'm asking you to please respect our feelings and not display them. <laughs> Seriously? Bitch, take the day off. Problem solved. <laughs> By her logic, women shouldn't wear engagement rings, nor should married couples show their wedding bands, because that would remind the unloved that, <laughs> well, they're unloved. <laughs> if love lovers followed that example, we would have to tiptoe around with our joy packed inside, and to that I say, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> love is beautiful. Love is in the air. And as Captain James Kirk would say, love is a mini splendor thing. <laughs> love is exciting and new. The love boat. See, nobody created a television show called The Not Love Boat. There wasn't an, an I don't love Lucy show and, or everybody doesn't love Raymond. I wouldn't pay to see a movie called Not Love Actually or Shakespeare Not In Love. <laughs> and given love haters line of, not, not line of logic, the porn star would have to change her name to Linda Not Lovelace, which is awkward and strange and unnecessary, but love is. <laughs> love is hearts awkwardly cut from red construction paper by tiny hands wielding blunt-ended scissors. It's that cigar box in red tempera paint covered in raw macaroni that spells out, I love you. It's the single rose under your windshield wiper. It's that $60 bag of red M&Ms with your special message on them. Love is champagne and strawberries, flowers and candy, dinner at a romantic restaurant, rose petals on the bed spread in a hotel room, and hot sex on sheets that you don't have to change in the morning. Isn't that better than sitting around your apartment with your love-hater friends, eating popcorn, drinking cheap booze, and whining about how much you hate Valentine's Day? 
Now, it's no fun not having a somebody on Valentine's Day. But my friends, that is what Match.com, Plenty of Fish, OkCupid, and if you're short on time, Tinder and Grinder are for. <laughs> Take a picture of yourself, jot down your positive qualities, and post that shit online. Now, there's always some naysayer who says, but I don't want to meet a stranger. That online stranger is about as unknown to you as the person you picked up second semester, sophomore year at the campus kegger. I mean, come on, at least the online person will be sober the first time you meet, and they won't pee and puke all over your bathroom during your afterglow nap, and then get dressed and sneak out and leave that little surprise for you. Don't ask. <laughs> I, <laughs> I have developed a, a list of a few reasons why Valentine's Day is important and must be observed. One. Scientists say that chocolate gives you the same pleasurable feeling that you get from being in love. But chocolate will make you fat, and while you're blissfully munching on your new love, you may not realize that now you need insulin twice a day. Also, if you love-haters can prove that chocolate has orgasmic qualities, I'm down. Val two, Valentine's Day is a hallmark holiday. Eh, wrong. <laughs> Valentine's Day started in ancient Rome when men killed goats and dogs and skinned them. Then the women lined up to be whipped with those skins to ensure fertility. <laughs> now, if that is not going the extra mile for love, I don't know what is. Of course, once the church got wind of it, they had to perform the ritual with their clothes on. Plus, Hallmark didn't start selling cards till 1910, so love one, love haters, zero. <laughs> Three, for the most part, people are cheap. They don't put their hands in their pockets or pull out their debit cards for just anything. According to a random and uncorroborated page on the internet, Americans spend $190 million on Valentine's Day annually. Add, that, add to that the Star Wars, My Little Pony, and Minions Valentines that kids swap in school, and that number goes up to a billion dollars. That is real love. <laughs> Think about all the orphan holidays out there, ones that, are, that we don't even know of, and don't celebrate. Why? Because they're not as important as Valentine's Day. <laughs> Valentine's Day, well, you know, February 3rd may have some mer merit, but I'll get to that. <laughs> So, number one, January 1st is Z-Day. That's the day that honors people whose names, their first names or their last names begin with Z. Catherine Zeta-Jones, Renee Zellweger, Mark Zuckerberg, and let's, let's not forget the Zacks, Efron, Braff, Galifianakis, and Quinto, and the Zoes, Zaldana, and Dachanel. Their names begin with the least loved letter in the alphabet, and what do they get? Jack shit. <laughs> Okay, they're rich and can buy who and whatever they want, but we're not splitting that particular hair tonight. Two, January 4th is Play God Day, also known as Donald J. Trump Day, and to date, neither has had a military parade held in his honor. And what about January 23rd, National Pie Day? See, that's a day I can, holiday I can get behind because I love me some pie. And January 27th, Thomas Crapper Day. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, Mr. Trap, Mr. Crapper, while a plumber, did not invent the toilet. But the ball cock in the toilet, that deserves a little bit of hoopla now, doesn't it? And that's just a sampling of what's available in January. My birthday is February 1st, the beginning of Black History Month. Enough said. 
And February 3rd, our host, Don Hall's birthday, is National Work Naked Day. Yes! A day I'm sure he would enthusiastically embrace. <laughs> Why don't we recognize and spend money on these days? Because love is important. Although, Work Naked Day and that ball cock thing at least deserve an honorable mention. <laughs> This leaves another 360-ish days that lo love-haters can embrace and keep their grubby mitts and hateful allegations off of February 14th. There's nothing wrong with a holiday dedicated to lovers, so haters, get on the internet. Type in weird holidays on your birthday, find the one that blows your wig back, and leave <laughs> Valentine's Day the fuck alone. Thank you. Judge Shannon, who wins? Uh, it's about love. It's about love. Phyllis Porchet wins the night. All right. Writers throughout history have written prognostication about what we're going to be living in in the future. Jules Verne predicted the fax machine. Gene Roddenberry effectively predicted the cell phone and the iPad and all kinds of shit he predicted. Well, in the dystopian worlds, there are two writers that stand out that may or may not have predicted exactly the world we're living in right now. George Orwell wrote 1984. Aldous Huxley wrote A Brave New World. Tonight's debate will be dystopian visions, Orwell or Huxley. I am happy to be here, but I'm afraid uh, in my capacity uh, as a participant in this uh, debate dialectic, I'm going to have to depress you a little bit, uh, but I'm not going to lie to you. If you hang on, we're going to end on a, on a good note, I think, but uh, you really have to hang on. So we all know the world is ending, right? <laughs> At least our world. The United States is getting cut out of deals overseas that are going to flip the uh, global power to China and Russia, likely. Uh, these are countries without constitutions. Uh, these are oppressive governments. Our entire stock market is based on futures that aren't real. It's a balloon getting filled with piss growing on a needle. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that as oil gets shorter and shorter, that's going to give us less petrochemicals for the soil. Which, it is, which the soil is now dependent on. So there will be mass food shortages. Half our system of government is run and bought and paid for by psychopaths who are intentionally breaking the systems of government in order to make a more unequal society. And now they bow to the pumpin, pumpkin king of goblin fucks. And I said the pumpkin king of goblin fucks. That's right. He's a mm, goblin. That, <clears throat> um, that's not partisan exaggeration. That's the truth with colorful language. People are sick and tired of working harder every year for nothing while the people on top get richer and richer every decade while getting a soft handy from the news stations that their frat brothers own. And people are getting really sick of it and they've been really patient already. Oh, and don't worry, climate change is going to choke us all to death anyway. How the fuck did we get to this place? That wasn't even a comprehensive list 
of the bullshit we're facing right now. Okay, that might sound a little negative, <laughs> but look at it. I am at least a little close to the mark on that stuff. Find the lie there. There's some serious shit going down. How did we get here? There's a lot of reasons, but I believe the largest one is what Aldous Huxley understood. And that is that the human brain has an infinite ways, has, has infinite ways to be distracted, placated, to coax its own ego, to be addicted, and most of all, manipulated. It's just the way we're wired. It's just the way humans are. And it is because of that, because of these fundamental cognitive flaws in the human system, that Aldous Huxley's vision most cloakly represents our dystopian present. Ever since the last presidential election, I've been reading every book and consuming any resource I can to understand people better in terms of neurology and psychology. Because when I woke up on November 12th, I asked myself, if this is what democracy makes, what's the fucking point of democracy? Just consider, just, just our brains, just consider traffic. If there was a self-driving car program to stop and look at every single car way out of the way, that uh, got into an accident, you'd think that's a bad feature in that self-driving car. And yet, we can't help it. We have to think, don't look, to not look. Because our impulse, our subconscious impulse, is to look. And it's all you people, it's not me. <laughs> Even though we know it creates more traffic, we do it anyway, we can't help it. It's ingrained. Let me rewind about 100 years ago there lived a man named Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays was an American who lived his youth during uh, around World War I, and he happened to be the nephew of someone you've definitely heard of, Sigmund Freud. Edward Bernays had just as much, if not more, influence on our society than his uncle. Edward Bernays was a PR man. In fact, he invented the term public relations after the term propaganda was made a bad word by the Germans. Until around the 20th century, products were sold primarily on their basis of utility, how long they could last, how well they could perform. Edward Bernays read his uncle's writings and became fascinated by the idea of an animalistic unconscious that drives a vast majority of human behavior and decision-making. And he utilized his uncle's theories to become the first person in history to appeal to the more animalistic parts of us as a way to make a profit, for example. Tobacco companies approached Edward Bernays in the 1920s and they asked them, can we please find a way to make it okay for women to smoke cigarettes? There had been a taboo invoked against women smoking cigarettes in public or otherwise, and they were losing half their potential market. Bernays looked into it and this is what he did. He paid a group of debutantes to march in a, uh, to participate in the suffragette, suffragette march in New York City. He told his friends in the media that at the end of the march, these group of women were going to smoke cigarettes in public and call them torches of freedom, which they did. The next day, it was on the front page of the New York Times in a sensational controversy. It created the idea in our minds that a woman smoking a cigarette was strong and independent, which is a notion that persists to this day. See the poster for I, Tanya for a more recent example. 
and it worked. It worked really well, and it still does. And there are millions of stories just like that that have occurred from then until now in the business of drawing attention because your attention is worth a lot of money. $65 billion a year in just advertising alone. And we're talking about every single politician, advocacy group, news story, fake news story, social media platform, video game commercial, billboard, every single radio and TV station, streaming service, every single advertisement of any kind, every entertainment media that exists, all newspapers, magazines, product containers, websites, and you know, so on. All fighting 24 hours a day, every single day to get you just to look at them. And doing that with the latest technology in over a century of psychological research because there is a lot of money in it and it works. According to neurological research, a full 98% of human thought is automatic and unconscious. Only 2% is dedicated to slow, careful, conscious, analytical thought. Because of that, Facebook can lure your eyeballs in with a burst of endorphins with a Facebook like. The national media can lure eyeballs by constantly reporting on Trump because you either love him or hate him. Clickbait, if clickbait is so dumb, why does it work? The bait is for lizard brain. It works. It's why fake news spreads and works. It's why arguing on the internet is useless, but we do it anyway. Only 7% of what we communicate comes through in the words alone. Thank you. <laughs> really? Yes, I'm just letting you know. Ah, oh, Christ, I did this last time too. Yeah, yeah. I was going way too long. I didn't look at it. Um, <laughs> most of our communication is unconscious, tonality and body language. That's why you can get a bad vibe on people and not be sure why. All right? Of course, we have Orwellian levels of privacy invasion. Why? Because, God damn it, Facebook thing. All right, because. <laughs> the way we are wired. To achieve the most invasive surveillance in history, all they had to do was give us the cameras and feed us Facebook likes. <laughs> all right? So we have the United States losing power because we're wired to think short-term over long-term. We have a stock market overvalued many times more than there is money in the world because there's large sums of money the people deciding what the value of the stock market is get a lot of money for doing that. And that creates, that stimulates the same part of your brain as cocaine does. The Republican Party, for all previous reasons, climate change persists even though studies show that if you tell a lie enough, people have a harder time letting go of it. And I think that in this regard, I am wrapping up. Um, I think that it is obvious and very painfully so that Huxley's prognostications present a far more accurate description of our dystopian present than does George Orwell. Let's skip some paragraphs. <laughs> what they both got wrong is that this would come from a, so for, as a system of control. It's not. It's just humans being humans. It's mostly just good people in a bad system. Now, I said I would offer hope, and here's what I have to offer. I think our chance is small. I think it's the same uh, percent as we have for deliberate thought, and that is 2%. Take a logic class. And a lot of you are thinking like, oh, logic, I'm a smart person, I'm good at that. No, you're fucking not. Take the class, I'm not great at it either. But do it, learn, it's, it's a deliberate skill you have to learn. I wouldn't expect, we shouldn't expect anyone to know calculus if they've never taken a math class. Just do it, all right? 
There are tons of free resources online to teach you, and the hardest part will be when you take that little bullshit radar that you've created as reasons are best at defense against bullshit and turn it on yourself. That's going to be very hard, all right? Because right now there is not enough reason to fuel the machine of self-rule because we're too flawed, and that's what Huxley understood. Skipping more paragraphs, go right now. Um, I think that if we all got together, we could have any world that we wanted. Now, if only we could all agree on what we want. And I think these are the final two truths, is that the harsh one is that that can't happen with the way that we're wired. Humanity isn't going to last. All right? We have the same kind of brief blip there as we do in our individual lives, surrounded on both sides by infinity. But that is exactly why I think we still have to work for it so that we and all human beings to come may better enjoy the incredible privilege of existing for a mere blip of time as the universe aware of itself. And to keep it going for as long as we can because that is a gift worth fighting for. And as an added bonus, one of the top precursors to human happiness is feeling like you're part of something larger than yourself. So even just the process of working together for a better world, I think, is worth it. Vote Huxley, everybody. Vote Huxley. That's it. And Literate will be publishing all of the missing paragraphs. <laughs> if you've read any of his pieces on the ape, he has a lot to say. It's good stuff, but in a live setting, there's times, there's limits. Okay, Alice Huxley, I hope you read A Brave New World. If you didn't, you're fucked. Ladies and gentlemen, David Himmel. I was, I was just putting my watch back on. I let him borrow it so he could keep time on the... <laughs> I don't believe in limits. I'm going to adjust this for a second. You're not okay. gonna I'm going to... It's fine. All right. <laughs> you just stand and talk. It's all right. Okay. All right. Okay. We can hear you. Okay. All right. Um, please note that this is being recorded. Okay. Um, <laughs> just as Orwell would have it, mind you. Oh. Oh, if you're not afraid, if you're not afraid, you should be. We are living in an Orwellian dystopia. Aldous Huxley's dystopia, his dystopian idea was one of compliance through, through trickery, distraction, and drugs. And yeah, yeah, we're all distracted and doped up on downers and uppers and in-betweeners and confused by all of it. Too many of us question the evil workings of government too hard because, or too many of us, I'm sorry, too many of us don't question the evil workings of government too hard because, well, there's, there's a panda eating bamboo in a zoo and it's streaming live right now. It's right now, it's right now. Look at it, look at it right now. <laughs> Why march down to our local leader's offices when we can have one big march, one big march every year with our friends and signs and neat hats, pussy. <laughs> we reward ourselves for a long day of being alive by distracting ourselves further even when we're actually engaged. Read this news story from the website. Peruse Apple News and see what else is going on. 
then to your Facebook feed, and then try to listen to CNN's gay robot head invite other robot heads to scream at each other and blur the words into a language of pure gobbledygook. Shop for the stuff you don't need on Amazon, Etsy, straight from the brand's website or shop local when Facebook reminds you it's record store day. <laughs> Buy more crap, entertain yourself, then sell it off on Craigslist or let go or whatever the hell else my wife uses to let get rid of my shit. Fucking shit, get rid of my shit. You don't need <laughs> Our consumption and our sleeping pills and our my pillow yeah. They're all of Huxley's design, you see. Quiet, confused distraction. Sure, that's more important than it's ever been, but George Orwell's dystopia, a fear-mongering, revisionist, history, perpetual war, public manipulation, and cult of personality, that's been our reality for generations. The looming tenets of an Orwellian world are perpetual war, Omnipresent governmental surveillance, public manipulation. Let's address them. <laughs> Perpetual war. If it's not Iraq or Afghanistan, it's a war on drugs or terror or poverty, which is a war on poor people, let's be sure of that. Occupation of nations, might as well be war. Some place in the world is always at war with itself or some other place. Peace is bad for business and promotes freedom, which is counter to compliance. Just look at our own police. Seriously, look at our own police here in Chicago and tell yourself that we, are, that we live in a free state. If you can do that, you're a fucking liar. <laughs> Omnipresent governmental surveillance. The government tries to keep an eye on us. In Chicago, it tried those red light cameras, but I'm part of the class action lawsuit that is gunning to get reimbursed for paying those tickets we were, that were ruled unconstitutional. That's a good thing, but it's, it's not a win, okay? I don't think the government is in Paul Ryan and Congress, quote, unquote, Congress, okay? I don't think they're watching you jerk off or shovel out your alleyway. No, they don't, they don't give a fuck, they don't have to. They react to things trending on hashtags, they know what the masses are thinking. It's the other arm of the government that's surveilling us. Well, not an arm, but, but a tool. Hmm. Big business. Yeah. Facebook. Google. Holy fucking Christ, I think Bing is in on it, right? Bing? The fuck? <laughs> Bing? Show of hands, who knows what the fuck Bing is? is. Like seven of you? Seriously, seven of you. Eight? Okay, fucking Peter before me, like, he's like, oh yeah, oh, fucking yeah, Bing. Bing is in on this shit. It's that fucking ubiquitous that Bing is taking the All right. <laughs> Our cookies are valuable. Our data mind is greater currency than whatever the fuck we pretend to think cryptocurrency is. It's nothing. It's nothing. Look, if Mark Zuckerberg puts, uh, puts tape over the camera on his computer, you bet your bald balls I'm gonna fucking do that. If Apple, Apple has perfected the face recognition, okay, it not only knows what all of us look like, but it can take your face and turn it into a fucking panda bear. What the fuck is it with panda bears? 
Why are they so goddamn distracting? That's a Huxley-like distraction. Yeah, sure it is. But the threat is real. Big business is watching us, and it's learning and reacting, and it's paying the government to act on their behalf so that we can convince ourselves that we want something before we actually want it or need it. All right, public manipulation. This is the big one. And this is the tenet that has been a practice and the longest since it's been, it's been, it's, it's, it's been the most effective. Orwell's 1984 talks about Newspeak, a language invented by the government. Well, we've seen that recently with, uh, with Trump's fake news and alternative, alternative facts, right? And Kavvifi, 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 Okay, there's doublethink, which is accepting two mutually exclusive or two mutually contradicting beliefs as absolute and true while being totally unaware of the danger the hypocrisy promotes. The rural poor, the conservative Republican base engages in this to great effect by routinely voting against its best interest generation after generation after generation after generation after generation. It's how we get, oh, fuck man. That's how we get all the power into the big companies. We are killing the middle class and further snuffing out the poor and preventing any opportunity for individual growth. The factories are closing, but hey, at least healthcare and socialists. These people don't even recognize that any functioning society must have a degree of socialism. Lest there be no roads or water pipes or electric lines paid for by citizens pitching in via tax dollars. Pitching in? Helping your neighbor? Hey, assholes, that's fucking socialism. <laughs> no, seriously, that's fucking socialism. <laughs> the regressive left. The regressive left, it participates in double ink too, which is equally as damaging by screaming against authorita authoritarianism while defending safe spaces void of variety of thought? Thought crime is another phrase Orwell, or Orwell introduces to. Thought crime is a punishable offense that may, it may not occur with action, but just for thinking something anti-establishment or at odds with they who hold power. Trump accusing those who did not applaud for him during his State of the Union address of reason, well, that's an example, right? We balance this behavior now in the Me Too movement. As accusations of condemnations fly without concern for the spectrum of appalling behavior, we run the path along the slippery slope that even thinking about approaching someone for a date when they may or may not be in the mood to be asked up by your awkward, ugly ass, well, well, that could be considered assault, man. Maybe permission for permission is a good thing, but it appears no one is sure where the line is and we're distracted even more. When it comes to cult of personality, we are living during a time of grand exuberance. Yeah, Trump is a perfect example of it because he creates and promotes it, but so too does Oprah. Yeah, 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 Oprah is the same as Trump. Fans of either, they join the cult without batting an eye. They buy their products, they buy their bullshit, they love thy name. Oprah gives a good speech and we're calling for her fucking candidacy. <laughs> There even remains a cult of personality around the Obamas. Yeah, many of us long for the leadership of calm and thoughtful man as his intelligent and, and his intelligent engaged wife. But we forget about his drone initiatives and the civilian killing and the underlying class war that was building during his administration. 
things weren't perfect under Obama. They just hadn't come to a head yet. And Obama cannot come back and fix it. Fuck the Constitution. This is beyond Obama. This is beyond personality. Put down the fucking Kool-Aid. And then we have the Michael Jordan of public manipulation, historical revisionism. Trump stuttered it. He started by claiming that he didn't rain, that it didn't, that it didn't rain during his inauguration, and that more people attended it than they actually did. He routinely rewrites history. But that's the American way, the Orwellian way. That's why history books in schools don't say anything about how we totally fucked ourselves in Vietnam, and how the Russians won the European theater in World War II. They fucking did. They did. They busted through, and we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then some guy like mouth kissed a chick in the streets and we're like, oh, America, but that was fucking rape. That picture of the sailor, <laughs> look that shit up. She's like, I don't know the fucking guy. He finger banged me out of night. <laughs> he didn't finger bang her. He didn't finger bang her, but like he might as well have with her mouth, with his mouth. It's, all right, anyway. It's a tongue bang. All right, look, Ronald Reagan was rewriting history as it happened. Something Trump has tried to do, but he can't because Reagan... See, Reagan was built to lead a cult. Trump was slapped together by a false sense of knowledge, deranged elitism, and split-tailed sperm. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, the winner writes the history books. So by default, we must be the winner. America, right? And we have been, but it's not because of greatness and righteousness. It's because of corruption and money and misuse of power, and anyone who challenges America's might might be swiftly thwarted. Thwarted, not thwarted, thwarted. Oh, shut the fuck up. This, my asshole fucking grammar friends. This is what Orwell envisioned. This is that terror. This is that fear. Huxley's fall utopia is an actor on the stage of our Orwellian world. We're all gonna die. And we're all gonna watch it happen. I'm not sure that <laughs> correcting your pronunciation of thwarted falls under the grammar Nazi. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. He is, he is the co-editor of a digital magazine, so I'm not sure. I would hope he knows the grammar Nazi from... Sour against trolls. That's what it is. All right, okay. It is the hope that everybody's read 1984 in a Brave New World. I'm... Assuming Shannon has, because Shannon, it is your choice. Who wins this round? Who was most prescient? Was it Orwell or was it Huxley? Huxley, Huxley all right. Peter Kermitis wins. And that is Bug House. Thank you, Shannon. Give Shannon a hand. Thank you to the Haymarket Pub and Brewery. 
if you are interested in knowing more about Literate Ape, go to literate.com. If you want to know about our events, go to the events, because it's right there. You just click on events, it takes you right there. Um, we thank you so much. Really, that's the thing, it's Monday night. You guys came out here, you sat in a bar, you had delicious food and drink, and you listened to debates about uh, a variety of topics. I hope you enjoyed yourself, but I thank you for coming anyway. With that in mind, good night. Yeah.